HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, every week on air on The Farm Report. This fall, we are exploring kind of the numbers uh, behind the food production in the U.S. and beyond. Off air, I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. And in that role, I have to encourage you to pop on over to www.heritageradionetwork.org check out our fancy pants new website would love to hear what you think and um what you like what you don't like comments uh, are all appreciated you can hit us at info at heritage today we are talking about a topic very near and dear to my heart goats um five years ago we um at heritage foods usa an organization i spend uh one day a week working for every tuesday we started a program called No Goat Left Behind. And the idea behind the program was pretty simple. Uh, we were seen um, because of Ann Saxelby, who runs Saxelby Cheesemongers, a wonderful cheese company uh, that focused on cheeses of North America, farmstead cheeses of North America. A real rise in farmstead goat cheeses and fine dining menus across the city and the region. And over dinner one night, um, Ann and Patrick got to talking and had a moment where they were like, hmm, you know, to make cheese, you need milk. And to get milk, the animals need to be pregnant. And goats um, usually have twins, and half of those animals are usually male, and you can't milk a male. So what was happening to all these male goats on, on dairy farms and goat farms around um, the Northeast? And so um, basically with nothing more than that, um, I set out um, to figure out the rest of the story and it led me down a path of learning a ton about goat and goat farming and um, working with about 50 chefs here in the city to bring goat to uh, the fine dining table once again and I'm really excited to share that it's our fifth anniversary this year and um, the project is going stronger than ever and today uh, we're joined on the line by one of my favorite producers and a longtime partner in the project Mark Bostian. Mark welcome to the show. Hi Aaron. Great to have you on. Um, so Mark runs a, a farm called Highwood up in Spencer, New York, that we had the pleasure of visiting earlier this um, summer. And he raises, actually unique to the program, he raises meat goats for us, um, boar goats primarily. And they do breed in um, a little bit of dairy genetics to help with milk production for the kids on the farm. Mark, how did you get into goat farming? Well, my wife has a longer history in um, animal husbandry than I do. She grew up in Long Island, but her family had a rural uh, property in northeast Pennsylvania where her grandfather had farmed uh, during his life, and she grew up wanting to leave the suburban area and get out in the country and 
get involved in farming. And her and I met when I was in Ithaca, and she was already going as a sheep and had had some goats uh, producer. Actually, at the time we met, she was transitioning situations and wasn't doing anything, but very shortly after we got together, we determined that we would take this farm that we were living on and get it back into some kind of production. And one day she showed up with a couple goats, and uh, it just went from there. <laughs> now, this was back in around 1994, is that right? Uh, probably 96. 96. 90, 90, 97 we got going in earnest. So how does one go from a couple of goats to how many are on the farm today? Well, our, we, this year we had 114 kids born to about 60 breeding adults, and we keep about 20 animals around for you know future replacement purposes and things like that. So I don't know, I'm probably not going to fail my arithmetic test here, but in round numbers, at our peak we're around 200, and then over the winter we'll cut down to about 80. Got it. And is that considered a large goat farm, a medium no. goat farm, a small goat well, farm? In New York, it's 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 perhaps up there a bit, you know. But compared to the to you know large sheep farms and stuff like that, you know, you know we're not small. I like to think of us as sort of you know sort of small intermediate, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. But you know, big sheep farms and stuff in this area will run six hundred to a thousand head. Wow, and so that's a big farm. Yeah, I, I, I consider us, you know, because it's it's you know my wife works a full time job, and I have other things that I do in addition to this. Although I do uh, spend my time here on the farm and am primarily responsible for the day to day you know work that goes on on it. So how does one go from a couple of goats to you know approaching two hundred at its peak? Well, slowly we, um, you know bred the first two that we had, and then we had a few more, and then we started looking around for people that had animals for sale, and we bought in um, four goats that I always refer to as the gang of four, and they were good for us to produce a lot of young over the first few years, and then we had an opportunity to buy out a small uh, herd that it was converting from dairy to, uh, to meat production, so we got their animals when they were mostly about 50% boar, 50% various dairy breeds. And, um, uh, and that was, was really the, the foundation of the, of the herd. There were 22 animals, as I recall, in that group, and that had us up around 30-ish. And then, you know, we decided every year we would keep animals, you know, to expand up until we felt like we were at a reasonable carrying capacity for both our time and the land that we have. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So thinking about that kind of um, slow uh, growth as you're expanding your herd from season to season, um, you know, my understanding is that the gestation period for a goat is somewhere around 150 days. Um, Can you talk a little bit about kind of like the life cycle of a a goat on your farm when you do kind of breeding and kidding and and why and and how things kind of move on and off the farm? Well, the goats are what they refer to as being seasonally polyesterous, which means that they will cycle on a regular basis, but they only do it for part of the year. And they begin their cycling during the waning uh, sun. So July, August, you know, they're going to start coming into, into heat. September, October, you know, they're ready to go. Um, and it, left to their own devices, they have a five-month gestation period you would be looking at kidding to occur sometime December, January, during what here in New York are the you know the coldest and least desirable times of the year to be up at two in the morning in a in a cold barn. So in order for us to um, avoid that, we begin our breeding in November by keeping the bucks separated from the the rest of the herd, and then we'll set up our breeding groups sometime around usually the seventh to fifteenth of November. Introduce the the bucks into their groups and then leave them in there for six weeks. That takes the does through at least two complete cycles so that anyone that doesn't get bred on the first go-around has a second shot at it before we take the bucks back back out. And then, you know, your 150 days from that puts us around the middle to the end of April and then through May is our kidding time. And at that point, you know, it's, even though you can have cold nights and things like that, it's generally 
warm enough that if somebody sneaks out of the barn and has their kids outside, they're not going to freeze to death before they can be found. Um, and uh, you know that, and it's it's comfortable for us because you're up a lot in the night, you know, checking on them, and and that works out good. And the other thing that works out good for us about that timing and why we choose to do that is that about the time that the does have kitted, they're right, you know, the grass is ready, and we can move them then directly onto pastures that are adjacent to the barn during the sort of the luscious growth period. So during their you know peak lactation period, you know there's the, the fresh grass is right there ready for them, and we're not feeding you know purchased and stored hay to to the lactating animals. So all those things work out to, in our view to make that a good time. Yeah. So then the animals, um, you know, after they're born and they are kind of hanging tight like how how do you kind of determine is it also like a seasonal determination around when to bring things to slaughter or is that more of like a market-based decision and and how is that kind of shifted over the years so well markets are always important in decisions that you make and historically there was a big market for very young animals around the uh, christian easter holidays and so people who still focus on on meeting that market of course they have to kid in december january um raise the kids up for a couple of months and then and then you know they go and of course those animals bring a premium on a per pound basis but they're also very small um and uh so it's it's that's just a math problem but um we've got into this well can i actually let's yep. just i just want to like just lay that out a little bit more for, for for folks so um when you have you know what is was essentially a, a a goat that's just a few weeks old um for that for that kind of holiday market um about what size you know is, are we talking about well, I think around 30 pounds. You know, we've never done that. So I personally, you know, these are things I, that I hear about talking to my wife and other people who have been in this business longer in, in a more diversified way than I have. But, um, but I think something around 30 pounds. 30 pounds being be the, li- the live weight. Easter kid, yeah, live yeah. weight. And, and so in general, I know you're looking at somewhere around a 50% loss um, from live to hanging weight, but I have to assume when the animals are that young, it's probably the ratio is probably a bit, a little bit different still. I would think, but again, I I don't have personal experience with that, but my guess is that they dress at a little bit higher of a percentage. So, so even if you're bringing in, you know, a premium price per pound, the the animal that you've already kind of borne this cost um, through its kind of gestation. It's made it through being born, you know, it's lived a first couple of weeks of its life, which my sense is like those are often like the, the more um, vulnerable times in the animal's life cycle. But, but maybe that comes a little bit later or maybe it's just like kind of equal across its lifespan. I, I think I missed the word. Did you say vulnerable? Vulnerable, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's like, a, you know, when you're thinking about like where to... Um, you know, charge where risk is coming on in the in the animal kind of process. Um, I'm just curious. My sense is that like it's like the breeding, the gestation, and the birth are are are, are some of the the kind of critical control points in that. Well, yes, I would agree. Um, which is, I guess, I guess, like the point I'm kind of driving at is. Um, you know, to me, I think there's always we get we get a lot of calls through heritage foods uh, more for more for pigs than for goats, but some for goats for uh, suckling pigs and smaller animals. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like one of the things I, I'm always trying to um, lay out for folks is, you know, why you know why we do or don't do animals mm-hmm. at that sizes, but also like why it's so much more like why the farmer has already like incurred a lot of the risk that the dollar per pound that you have to charge should be so much higher because if you just let that animal live a few more months like it you know the size is gonna you know double if not more yeah well i I mean it's it's a dietary preference thing the people that i believe drive that eastern market you know basically in the united states like they're european immigrants and it's cultural. That's what they want. They, they, you know, the animals at that age, you know, are mostly 
on uh, the doe's milk, perhaps fooling around with, you know, forages and things of that nature. But it's a pale, you know, it's a very pale meat, um, you know, like in the cattle world, you know, like you would get with, you know, milk-fed um, veal. Right. And and it's what what people want. It's cultural. I mean, it's not my culture, but that's what um. Yeah. You know, what I think, you know, drives that that demand. It's traditional and 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 that's what they what they like. Yeah, no, I mean and I think that too like totally makes sense to me. Um and thinking about kind of where those like traditions came from and how much more like ubiquitous farmers and smallholder farms were. So that was a thing that you were getting not through um a bigger like egg system, but from you know, the producer up the street. I think there's it's, there's like something weird about producing animals for consumption during that time. Uh, it, it, it's a little where like the kind of the, the farming and the like historical culture and the way farming has been so kind of consolidated and so different um, here in the U.S. than in a lot of places around the world. But also just as we move forward in modern times, like there's that weird space between kind of culinary culture and the way we produce food in this country. And I think this is like one of those areas that to me always sticks out as like a, I don't know, just kind of like a space to like really sit with and, and think about those changes and what we're kind of gaining and losing in that evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, for, and for us, we, when we got into it, you know, the, the market, of, you know, that was primarily aimed at, you know, European Im- immigrants, First generation. A lot of times, people, you know, second generation into the United States, they, they sort of lose the um, kind of culinary predilections of their, um, uh, you know, first generation immigrant ancestors and whatnot. But the market that was growing at the time that we got in was a different ethnic market whose interest was in a larger um, animal, and that would be the um, the halal market. Uh, you know, they were asking for carcasses. That were in the 50 to 60 pound range, which is what you can comfortably get an animal to in a, a single growing season. And you know, for you know, and I don't know what the cultural origins of their interest in that you know size animal is, but that's what they wanted, and that's what we initially started to produce for. Yeah, I think it's like one of the things I find so fascinating about goat as an animal is that it's eaten so widely across the world, but that there's also um, seemingly a culinary preference for the goat at every stage in its life and a culinary preference for, you know, male versus female or a a castrated versus a Mm non-castrated male and, you know, how the goat is uh, fed or how it's fed just before it's slaughtered. And, you know, we were looking, um, kind of doing some prep for the show and, and pulled um, a little bit of some, some top 10 lists, if you will, from the International Kiko Goat Association. So mm-hmm. Kiko is another breed of, of meat goat. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, you, do you guys have any Kiko on, on the farm? No. And, and why not? I know that is something that's come a little bit into fashion in the Northeast. Well, you know, we got started with our you know, sort of foundation and herd of mixed boar and, and, and dairy um, and we've always, you know, just stayed with with uh, our own females as replacements. So they had the genetics that we already had. And then any bucks that we've brought in from the outside have been fairly high percentage um, boars. Um, and I mean, really, that's that's it. Yeah. I mean, we have a have a, a another producer that raises nice um, goats and keeps bucks. And every once in a while, when we feel like we need new genetics, we just buy buy person that we've always bought. From. Yeah, which totally um, like it's so, what I would do. <laughs> and I don't know a lot of truthfully. I don't know a lot about the the Kiko. I'm aware of of them, and I know that there are people that like them. You know, and we like the sort of mixed breed herd that we've got. And but um, you know, but in in my personal experience, I've never raised either Kikos or Spanish meat goats. Well, I'm going to come back to some of these top 10 lists in just one second, but I do, we, we did kind of skip over one other thing that I always like to point out on my show, which is um, how many, so how many um, male animals do you need for your flock, for your herd? Yeah, we like to 
try to keep the breeding groups in the 20 to 25 individual range. We'll push it to 30. Sometimes we have to. So for the size herd we've got, we generally like to, to have three breeding groups. So this year, you know, we'll breed 65 to 75 um, does, and we'll break them up into uh, into three groups. And the bigger, you know, more proven and mature, you know, bucks will get a little bit bigger of a group. And then this, you know, well, this year we, we won't be using anybody that hasn't, you know, been used on this farm before. But if, if we have a youngster, we might give them a slightly smaller uh, group to, to go with. And we actually have a fourth buck on the farm right now that we probably, we won't breed in any meaningful way this year, but he's going to replace somebody next year. I like that, not breeding in a meaningful way. I'm like, well, I mean, you they're know, not, gonna, the, no dates we, beforehand. Well, let, like. let him in for a little bit, uh, <laughs> clean up buck, but. Yeah. Um, so, well, kind of to break that down, so we're talking about one male to around 20, 25 female. Yeah, we've gone as high as 30, but. That's the thing about males. I feel males on a farm, it's nice work if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of positions open. Well, one of the things, so I, you know, I referenced, I brought up the Kiko because I wanted to let folks know where we were pulling these um these consumption information from, and, and they're looking at goat consumption overall, not necessarily just uh, Kiko goats, but looking at um, the top 10 countries that are the world's largest goat meat producers. Um, I'm just going to go through the top five are China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and the Sudan, mm-hmm. which I thought was was just kind of, you know, interesting. Uh, um, the top 10 goat meat importers, number one is the U.S. Um, and then number two is United Arab Emirates. Number three is China. So it's interesting that they're one of the top producers and the top importers. Uh, number four is Qatar. And number five is Hong Kong. Um, and then just kind of like rounding, rounding this out, we have the top 10 goat meat exporters. So number one is Australia. Number two is Ethiopia. Number three is China, again, on the list. It's importing and exporting and growing. I don't really know how that works. But uh, number four is Pakistan, and number five is France. And um, I don't know. I find that like that spread of import-export so interesting. And, and it is kind of something when I, I think about goat in particular, um, and you think about kind of goat markets, as we were talking about earlier, that making decisions um, based on the market that you have, um, what are what are kind of the outlets? I I know you guys have partnered with the No Goat Line No Goat Left Behind project through Heritage Foods. But if you weren't working with us, what are other ways that producers in the Northeast um, sell their mature animals? Mm-hmm. Well, there's you know, of course, you can always take animals to to an auction where buyers will come. And pick up goats, and around here, those goats are almost always headed to New York City, and they're going to find their way into the ethnic market in the city some some way or another. Um, they might go to a live market, um, or they you know may go through some processor and, and end up in, in meat shops uh, around the city. But that, my guess is that most of the goats bought at auction are are you know end up there. It's the biggest market in the region. Um, there are people that, that do um, on-farm slaughter. If you are in an area where there's a fairly big uh, immigrant population, there are a lot of people that like to come out, you know, buy a goat, do the butchering of it themselves, or to have somebody on, on the farm do it for them and take the fresh um, carcass home. And, and we know of producers in the Syracuse area and in the Buffalo area that run those kinds of of, of operations, and you know, they get for their extra trouble of having to deal with the public, you know, a better price. Because for us, and when we sell to you or through previous mechanisms, we provided somebody with with a live animal, and they were responsible for everything else that, that came after that. So these on-farm slaughter operations, you know, will get more money by virtue of the fact that there's you know the sort of the, the the middle. They're also fulfilling the middleman function in addition to being the producer. Um, you know, and a lot of people just scramble for um, 
for for buyers, you know, in all livestock production, there's what they refer to as a freezer trade, where you take the animal yourself, you have it processed, you bring the meat back, it goes in a freezer, and then you try to find people that will buy it. And in our area, you know, a lot of beef and pork is done that way. We know sheep producers, um, well, and goat producers, too, for that matter, that do that. And they just do a process of timely being out, letting it be known that they've got it, um, uh, build up a clientele, and they produce as much as they feel that they can find buyers for in that method. That was never really our first choice of ways to go, and we've never really done that ourselves. Um, we've always been able to find buyers who wanted to just, you know, buy a large number of animals at one time. Before we met Heritage Foods, we had a, a, a buyer that liked to buy our goats. He had a farm and a custom slaughter plant on his farm, and he had um, customers, primarily halal customers, coming out of Rochester and Buffalo that would come to his farm, and he would process the, the animals for them. And then, you know, for the last five years, you know, um, Heritage has been our, by far and away, our largest um, uh, buyer, and, uh, and that's, that's sort of the way we like to, we prefer to do it, you know, just to uh, find somebody that wants to buy the, buy the animals, and we provide them, and then they it's their responsibility. <laughs> yeah, sure. The With the it. rest of it. Um, but I think the risk in there is that you are, you're also like that whole chunk of your business is really tied to another business that you That's don't, right. that you don't control. So I think there's the kind of like control trade-offs that can happen in that sure. space. Um, mm -hmm. and it, Farming's a risky business. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every year you worry about, there's a lot of things to worry about. Um, so. Not that I think you have to worry about that, but I do want to, you know, I do want to point out that like those kind of like relationships, um, you know, when things change um, or, you know, stuff, it's, it's just it's that's uh, you're kind of like always hedging your bets and, and what works for your business and your farm. And, um, you know, it's interesting to me kind of um, looking at the U the U.S. goat market and really thinking about this project. I feel like it's such a great kind of microcosm um, to explore like what's happening in the livestock space and, and how that's different in different parts of the country and um, and different parts of the world. I mean, the top three states for kind of goat inventory and product um, sales in the U.S., you know, number one is Texas, number two is California, number three is Missouri. Um, but you, we have, um, you know, did in the last census, in the 2012 egg census, see uh, a decrease of the number of goats um, in in the U.S., down 17%. Yeah. Um, uh, Some of that, likely, I don't know this for a fact, but, you know, this, the drought that they had in Texas a few years ago um, had a big impact on the goat market in general because back in the day, Goats used to come up from Texas, you know, in large numbers to the big, you know, auction places like New Holland and stuff like that. And I know that during that period where they had such a terrible drought down there for many years, the producers cut their numbers way back. And as a result, it was very good for prices for producers from other areas right. who stepped into, you know, to, to, to fill that void. And I, and I believe that goat currently is still a bit in short supply. Yeah, well, right that, now prices are pretty strong. It's, I mean, like kind of on the other end of that, like pulling, um, get from the Cornell University, they did a study called an overview of the goat meat market, and this is from 2012. But the import of goat continues to increase. So, um, you know, in 1991, we were importing about 1,700 metric tons. Um, in 2003, that had increased to like 8,500 metric tons. And then in 2011, it was almost 1,600 metric tons. Um, so you're seeing, you know, the the amount being produced impacted by, as you pointed out, potentially weather, um, a, you know, a re reducing number of farms. But you're also seeing uh, a really um, significant increase in imports. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to learn that actually 97% of, of goat meat imported in the U.S. comes from Australia. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I didn't I didn't realize it was so tied to. I knew it was a lot. I didn't know it was that much. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, get, I didn't know that either. But of course, Australia has always been a you know really big sheep importer to the U.S. as well. And um, well, you're so seeing too. they've got an established you know you know mechanism of, of moving you know animal meat from Australia to the United States. And I guess I'm not surprised that that, that given that their goat production numbers that they're importing a lot here. To, I think it's interesting. I feel like in this space, we're like often really tied to what's happening in Australia. I know like their drought um, back in like 2007, 2008 had a huge impact on milk prices for farmers here in the U.S. And and I guess like I only kind of bring these things up to, you know, hammer down on the point that we're really living in a global environment now when it when it comes to food that even you know the choices that are being made on uh you know a fairly you know small to intermediate farm like yours are being impacted by all these other outside forces um completely like out of out of kind of your control but really you know shifting the wind into kind of what the options for your business are yeah um (laughs) <laughs> Interesting though that, it, but at the same time, you know, there's a couple things with, with the, come to my mind when you bring up the, you know, this import business and the and the, the yeah. globalization aspects of, you know, like kind of all food production these days. Of course, you know, as you know better than 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 anyone, um, you know, there's a, a, a huge interest in locally sourced. Um, Food and if New York is really uh, importing that much goat, there's a lot of opportunity out there for people to get involved in goat production, and both to you know to to, to meet that you know demand for locally sourced food, you know, but also to compete with um, you know these international uh, you know producers. Yeah, well, and I think it too. I mean, it's like interesting that you bring up that. The, the, the competition, and I think that's something I feel like I really see more um, just because I work with the pigs, you know, uh, year-round, is, is really getting to see the difference in the infrastructure between um, the Midwest and the Northeast. And when you think about the, you know, breeding stock that's available, the skill and the history of the farmers, the, um, the, the kind of skill and the equipment of the abattoirs that they get to work with, and then the kind of cold chain um, of the people who are going to do kind of the delivery and distribution. There's so many factors that have to be working well to be competitive with what's coming in from outside. So, I mean, I definitely, like, echo you that there's uh, a lot of opportunity, um, but I feel like the 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 need is for uh you, you know there's a whole kind of like vertical space that needs in investment so it's like hard it's, it sometimes feels hard for me to imagine um how that's going to happen without um some type of outside or you know government support and and I you know I I don't know that's not really necessarily I think what farmers or producers are most interested or interested in hearing, but when you're needing to affect change across so many different spaces, um, I'm just kind of curious, like how, how the market forces will kind of come to bear on that and, and who has roles to play um, and, and where the, the opportunities kind of are definitely like lots of naughty kind of problems and, and, and things to work on. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, you know, the, I mean, obviously an important thing is, is for the market to, you know, to expand. And, I, you know, hats off to Heritage Radio Network for all the good programming you guys do on food and interesting foods and good food and slow food and all that. Um, more and more, you know, you know, we're finding that if we can put goat meat out in front of people, you know, they like it. Traditionally, you know, it was sold to people who had a cultural attachment to it but more and more you know people who don't are discovering and discovering that they that they they like it we have two other minor outlets um compared to the uh arrangements that we have to provide um heritage foods goes that there's a restaurant locally that regularly serves goats that they buy from us so 
about once a month I provide them, you know, with a with a carcass and the chef there does all sorts of amazing things with that. And we also provide uh, ground meat and a bone-in stew meat to a local uh, butchery that um, they routinely will just sell out. It's you know, you know, we give it to them and it goes. And you know, their customers you know like it. They want it. And um, they pull probably a fair number of customers from the university who have some type of a historical attachment to it. But 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 a lot not. They're just people that are out exploring new foods, finding this and deciding that it's something that they like. So as those trends, you know, hopefully, you know, continue, and, you know, I'm not predicting that goat will ever replace pork as a staple in, in America's diet or beef or, you know, whatever. But there's a lot of scope for it to grow because there's still a tremendous number of people who have never tried it, don't understand, you know, how good it is, and we can hype, you know, health benefits and things of that nature, too, because it is a relatively low-fat, you know, meat with a good fat profile as these things go. And... um you know, so that that's important. But once that's done, um, you know, th- there's a skill in in farming. You know, it's you, you can't just decide, oh, I'm going to be a farmer and step in and suddenly take the place of people who have lived on the farms all their lives, or you know, these multi generation family farms that are going out of business. You know, there's a steep learning curve that's going to extend over over many years. So recruiting new people into this business is going to require education and the cooperative you know extension services do a, a nice job of trying to meet that need but that of course is important but then the other thing that's hard and you'll know this is that finding processing yeah is very difficult um, the number when you're going to put the stuff into a restaurant you know or into a retail outlet the uh, slaughter has to be USDA inspected there's a real shortage of plants that can do that um, they're mostly, you know, really booked up and, you know, hard to get into. And you think, well, I'd like to expand my production by, you know, say 25 head a year. And then you're going, but can I find, can I get slaughter dates for 25 more animals during the course of the year or at the time when I need them? Um, because that's a shortage. And I went to a meeting to look into the possibility of trying to get a new slaughter facility in our area. And it, it was mostly farmers that were there. And while everybody pretty much agreed that, oh, that would be nice, you know, starting up businesses of that type isn't what they do. They're farmers. Right. You know, they're not, uh, you know, um, that, that's just not, not their thing. So then you go, well, where's the money going to come from? Yep. And ironic to me that all these um, farmers, we live in a relatively conservative area, so all they could talk about was if the government could give them money to do it. And, you know, it may be the case that because there is a fairly high investment that that, you know, kind of thing will be needed. But that whole area of getting adequate um, uh, processing to serve an expanded production is, um, is, is difficult, and it's, it's going to remain difficult in the, in the foreseeable future, I believe. Yeah, I mean it's a real it's a real, real kind of critical control point and well, we are unfortunately uh, coming to the end of our time here. Mark, it's always great to um, get a chance to connect with you. And I know that uh, if you're located here in New York City, you can definitely um, get to taste some of Mark and Luce's uh, wonderful go at a number of restaurants across the city. Um, but we also, I believe, through Heritage Foods, will have it available via mail order. So you can check the site for a list of restaurants or to order yourself some goat. Um, and then if you're up in um, the Ithaca area, um, is there a spot you want to send them to? Well, with the, in Ithaca, there's a, 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 a butchery called the Piggery, which um, will typically have goat meat that we provide in, and we like that. And then there's a really nice little tapas bar um, just off the Ithaca Commons in downtown called Just the Taste. And um, they're... Uh, their food across the board is good, and if typically she'll have some goat item on the menu. Yeah, ask for the goat. Awesome. Ask for the goat. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, share some of your insights with us. Hang tight, folks. We are going to take a short station break, and when we come back, it's time for the Escape Maker segment. We'll be on the line with... 
Beth Linsky of Best Farm Kitchen. Uh, it's going to be a jam. Hang tight. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Or come by Escape Maker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. The guide will be updated seasonally to feature farms, wineries, and destinations in New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Plus, Escape Maker will offer overnight packages to these destinations so you can get the full experience. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local farmer. Log on to EscapeMaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Okay, we are back. Thank you for tuning in to the Farm Report. In the second uh, chunk of the show here, we are joined on the line by Beth Linsky of Beth's Farm Kitchen. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Erin. You too. So I am definitely familiar with your smiling face and your, <laughs> your team of jammers from my, from my winters and summers and springs and falls at the Union Square Green Market, um, your jams, and popping over for a quick crapker and sample of jams, I feel like really kept me going. So thank you in advance. <laughs> it was our pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> we like that sampling routine. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, yeah, you're not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> I was so so. Um, you know, you got your team is located up in Columbia County. I was so impressed to see from your website, uh, and these are 2013 numbers. That that you guys used over thirty nine thousand pounds of New York State fruit and veg uh, in the year of twenty thirteen. That's crazy. Yeah, we uh, freeze everything in season, so we we can make jam all year long, and we also sell the fruit too. So it's some people like people's pops needs local fruit so they can buy from us. You know, when they just beginning the season before anybody has any stuff that's growing you know so we're we're good for them for early, for a spring you know if we have a warm spring and stuff like that so there's um lots of people who can buy it well so what's so great and i definitely recommend everyone visiting the site and checking this out because not only do they give the full um kind of poundage but they also break it down by category um, and it looked to me like blueberry was kind of leading the pack almost or just over, I think, 7,000 pounds of blueberries. I'm just trying to imagine in my head how, what that much blueberries looks like. Can you orient us? <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of moving and shoving. <laughs> we don't pick any of it. A lot of it's from fantasy fruit. Um, and many years we'll buy if something is really you know producing really well we'll buy more of it that year and then the following year we won't buy as much got it so i know like if i'm at my 
my, you know, in my apartment here in Brooklyn and I buy some blueberries to freeze for the winter that <laughs> I'm supposed to like put them on a sheet tray so they all freeze separately and I can use them. But how do you go about fruit, you know, freezing fruit in like bulk and does it really matter how you freeze it because you're going to mm. be cooking it into jam? It does not matter how we freeze it. Um, we put them into these large white buckets, which we call 30-pound pails, but they're not really 30 pounds. And they're put into, like, the blueberries are all uh, six-pound batches, so we'll have 18 pounds in a bucket, and we just freeze 18 pounds of blueberries. And we get a lot of ours from Fantasy Fruit. Um, so that they, you know, they're really good. We get them in these little containers like you take home, and then we have to empty each container into these con- these bigger containers, and then we just freeze it. Wow. Yeah, and uh, we, have a, we have a big freezer that we rent space in, so it's a drive-in freezer. Oh, wow. So, to, so I know you guys got started back in uh, 1981, really close to when the green market started. How did you kind of get into the market initially? I got in because I, I had been using it as a catering. I was a caterer at the time, and I started using it, uh, using the green market, and I was always giving you know people the best and the freshest and everything. So it was fun to be a corporate, doing corporate catering. But anyway, I uh, the tax laws changed, and I was not going to have those corporate jobs anymore, so I decided I could make jam, and I um, applied prior to learning how to make jam. <laughs> You're just like, I'm going to do this. <laughs> there was no city harvest or any of those kind of food rescues in those days, so that there were there was extra fruit at the end of the day, and I was able to buy it. Oh, and so, so you I got it started. Like, yeah, you got, like, good deals because the farmers were, like, rather than packing it on their truck, they're like, all right, yeah, well, that's what give you a price. Well, not only rather than packing it on their truck, they, they would go home and feed it to the pigs. I hate to see good fruit go do that yeah no. i like pigs but you know but come on <laughs> um well another thing that kind of like tickled my midwest heartstrings uh, is that you apparently are also a midwest uh woman yes i am and i loved there's a, a quote um that you know thinking about kind of exploring flavors of jam and you're like well tartar sauce was exotic to me <laughs> Um, but now you guys have 90 jam varieties. Um, so give us some highlights. What, what are like the big hits and have you had any kind of like misses? Well, my biggest miss was when I started, I couldn't make strawberry jam. I absolutely could not make it set. But now I can. I can even use it, do it in a demo and it'll, it'll set. So, but we still make everything in small batches. So there's only 12 jars per batch. Oh, wow. And um, so it's really very artisanal. We have, you know, like 15 pots of strawberry rhubarb on at one time. And um, it's just, I do everything really small but in big quantities. Yeah, like small pot over and over and over again. Yeah, strawberry rhubarb is our number one. It has been four years. It's just number one jam of everything. Our chutneys, uh, the blazing tomato has been number one since we started. Um, And then... You know, it, Mighty Hot Pepper Jelly has been number one in that category, the jelly category. The jelly there's, category. Yeah, there's habanero jelly, and there's Mighty Hot Pepper Jelly, and there's garlic rosemary jelly. Over the years, there's been lots of other ones, but those are the ones that actually sell, so that's what we're making now. And you guys uh, do mustard, like, from local, like, uh, the yes. Cayuga mustard seeds. We got um, Cayuga Pure Organics when they were really, you know, doing it we got um their mustard seed and it's held us over for a long time that's so cool well and also we have hot sauces now which we never had before and we even make pestos so like we do ramp pesto but we do pestos for other people well, I'm glad you brought up the other people because that was actually my next question. <laughs> now, you um, on your site, you offer co-packing and private labeling services. So what is the difference? Well, co-packing is when somebody has an idea or a recipe that they want to do themselves and sell themselves. So they come to us and they want to um, make um, Aunt Matilda's uh, hot sauce, right? And they have the recipe, and so uh, we help them put it through Cornell to get their schedule process, and we will give them assistance, guidance, 
whatever you want to call it, in getting, being sure the label has the right, you know, all that, and that the recipe tastes like what they want the recipe to. So we do test batches, and, you know, it's a process, Mm -hmm. not quick. Cornell takes at least six to eight weeks to get a schedule process back to us, and you only need schedule processes if it's an acidified food. You know, but... That seems to be what most most people want to make. Right. Something that's acidified. Acidified means it has vinegar in it, and um, so, or a lot of lemon juice, something like that. Anyway, so then we we just work it up, and then we'll produce it for them, and that way they can do their own marketing. Got it. Versus a private label, which is private just- label is just our jam, our jam with your label on it. So why why do that? Why not? I guess yeah. So they I, pay. Yeah. So you're just kind of like pre- yeah. But it's and also I suppose it's not people who are gonna you wouldn't do that for someone who's gonna open up a stand next to you at the market. You're doing that for for markets that you wouldn't reach otherwise. Oh yeah, we um, we made we used to make jam for Fred Wilco at Wilco Orchards. Mm-hmm. We currently make jam for Fishkill. We currently make jams for Samascot's Orchards. Got it. And uh, we make jam for Babette's Feast, which is a shop on the east side. Nice. And um, Agata and Valentina has our product with their label on it. So you may, your, 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 your jam, if it tastes extra delicious, there's a small chance it may have come from Best Kitchen. Well, we are uh, just, <laughs> ju- just about out of time, but I, wanna, I have one burning question before I let you go. What is with the hats? Oh, I just love hats. I think it's so much fun. So every holiday we wear whatever hat is sort of appropriate or what we feel is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely if you're in the New York area, worth a stop um, at the sand to taste. Union Square. Yep, Union Square to taste and um, Wednesday, taste the Friday jams. And Saturday. And then you are, are you at another market as well? or is it Union? Columbia University. Columbia University. On Thursday and Sundays. Awesome. And we have a website bestfarmkitchen.com. Yep. Awesome. Beth, thank you so much. It was such a treat. I will see you soon at the market. Good enough. Bye, Erin. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. You have made it to the end of another Farm Report. I'm excited to have you. Stay tuned. We have some fun episodes in the pipeline. We're going to be talking animal fats. We're going to be talking about grains, and we're going to be talking about farmland conservation. Quick shout out to my engineer, Liz, keeping it, keeping it going for us out there in the studio. Thank you, Liz. Um, I got to hustle out of here because uh, Kim Kessler from Eating Matters is up next. Definitely check out that show if you haven't had the pleasure yet. If you listen via iTunes, please stop by, give us a rating. Um, just stay in touch. We'd love to hear from you more. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned in. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening